turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, starting in verse 17. I'm going to read all the way through to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. 417 through to 68. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah bore, also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he had fathered Enosh for 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived for 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Kenan for 850 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, And he died. When Kenan had lived for 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he had fathered Mahalalel for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived for 65 years, he fathered Jared. uh, Mahalalel lived after he had fathered Jared for 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, And he died. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he'd fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, 
for God took him. When Methuselah had lived for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's living and active word. Let's ask him now to help us understand it. Father, we do thank you for this time. And we pray, God, that in your grace, you would now take your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, and apply it to our lives. Individually, yes, but corporately as a church, convicting us in the truths herein, and Lord, empowering us by your spirit to be more conformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this now in his name. Amen. When God promised that the seed of the woman would overcome the seed of the serpent, God was essentially initiating a conflict that would last on down through the ages. A conflict that would always exist between those who trust in God versus those who follow after that old serpent, the devil. To be sure, the conflict would climax in the death of Jesus Christ, the final promised seed of the woman, where in Christ's death, the devil surely thought he finally won. But Christ's death was not the end, but only the beginning of the end. For three days later, he would get back up and overcome death in his resurrection. And in his resurrection, Jesus would give the first deadly wound to Satan. Christ's resurrection would be the beginning of the end for Satan. The battle between those who follow God and those who follow the serpent, that battle will continue. Indeed, it still continues even till this day. But what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection marked the beginning of the end of the war. That moment was a kind of D-Day in its millennia-long conflict. And and we now, in, in our current context, look forward to a coming victory day, a day when Christ returns and he will finally cast Satan away into hell forever. We saw last week when looking at the account of Cain 
and Abel, how this conflict began to play out east of Eden, where Cain, who was jealous of Abel and infuriated that Abel worshipped God rightly from a heart of faith, Cain, following in the moral footsteps of the serpent and in enraged anger, murdered his brother. Abel was, in fact, the first martyr to die on account of his faith in God. But alas, the conflict between those who follow after God and those who would walk after the serpent, that conflict was only just the beginning. What follows now in our passage this morning is the continued unfolding of that conflict. Moses, I think, is developing and, 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 and building upon God's promise back in Genesis 3.15 that God would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. A promise which looks forward to the promised son who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent, bringing God's people back into God's temple garden to walk with him again. The way in which he does this is through two distinct lineages. The line and descendants of Cain versus the line and descendants of Seth. They're distinct, not just in genealogy, but but in theology as well. There's a marked difference between the two. But, But before we see the difference, did you notice how the lives of each generation, generally speaking, got a little bit shorter and shorter. Look at the lifespan of Adam in Genesis 5.5. He lives to be 930 years old. Uh, But just nine generations later, in verse 31, we see Lamech living only to be 777 years old. That's, you know, 200 years difference or so. Indeed, as we keep reading through Genesis, we'll see this trend continue by the time we Read the genealogy surrounding the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. We only see people living to be around 200 years old. And on and on, this, this trend continues through to the end of the book of Genesis. In other words, it seems, at least upon my reading, like sin is beginning to take its toll on mankind. Each generation living shorter and shorter lives the further they are from the Garden of Eden. Not only that, We see, especially in chapter 5, that repeated refrain. Did you hear it when I was reading it to you? And he died, and he died, and he died. Why does Moses do that? It's not because he's uninteresting or a boring writer. Moses is a brilliant writer, an inspired writer, and he repeats that phrase to make a point. It's It's a drumbeat that ought to reverberate through our ears that now that sin has entered into the world, death is always the result of each generation that comes. And he died, and he died. But even in the midst of death, it sure does look like God is still at work, right? Death will not reign. God will reign. Let's look how. First, look at what happens to Cain after he killed Abel, after God judged and cursed him. You remember God's curse on Cain was that he'd be driven away from his family, exiled from the land near Eden. In fact, God said, Cain, you will be a fugitive and a a wanderer upon the earth. He was cursed to be a wanderer. And yet, we immediately see the opposite happen. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore their son, Enoch. And then he, he builds a city, and he names the city after his son. In other words, instead of wandering, Cain settles. 
Instead of being a fugitive, he builds a protective city. This was, on all accounts, a defiant violation of God's will for Cain. No, God, I will not wander. I will resist. I will build a city, and I'll name that city after my own son's name. I think any careful reader will begin to see already allusions and foreshadows to the Tower of Babel, where they gather together to build a city uh, in the glory of their name, to make a name for themselves. This idea of building a city for your name originates with Cain. Of course, one question people often ask, and I've already had a number of people ask me this week, is, oh, where did Cain find his wife? The text assumes that she was, in essence, one of his sisters from Adam. As we'll later see, uh, Adam would live to be over 900 years old, giving birth to many, many children. Eric Alexander, a Scottish pastor, surmises that the strangeness of this is taken away a bit when we consider that Adam married Eve, who was taken out of himself. In other words, the uniqueness of being the first and second generation of humans requires such an awkward move. But that's not the question this passage is really raising. What Moses really wants us to consider is what is happening to humanity now that they've fallen and are living east of Eden. What becomes apparent is that there is a culture of ungodliness developing. Now, to be sure, the text is clear that there is culture developing, and this, by all accounts, is, I think, something of God's common grace to all humanity. Ungodly or not, we see God allowing culture to develop here. See the list of Cain's descendants who are listed in verse 18? To Enoch was born Irad, Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. We also begin to see certain cultural activities introduced, right? So for instance, one of Lamech's sons, Jabal, he was a master shepherd, uh, excellent at animal husbandry. Or Lamech's other son, Jubal, he helped craft music and musical instruments. And then his other son, Tubal-Cain, was a metal worker, cultivating the ability to forge bronze and iron. However much we see Cain's descendants as ungodly and the lineage of those who take after and follow the serpent, and we'll see that, nonetheless, we see God's common grace in allowing even the most ungodly among us to do good things for the world. Derek Kidner remarks that God was to make much of Cainite techniques and culture for even his own people, where we see Abraham, Moses, David, all excelling in shepherding and animal husbandry. Oh, but that's the stuff that the sons of Cain did. Well, that's okay. Or how about music? Have you ever read the book of Psalms? The musicality there is beautiful. And yes, the sons of Cain developed good music. In other words, we see here that even though the descendants of Cain are cultivating and and developing ideas to help build civilization, nonetheless, God uses those developments for the common good of all people. This is known as common grace. And it's a principle, I think, that we should readily affirm in our everyday lives. When I fly a plane... I'm not really concerned if the pilot is a Christian or not. I just want to know, are you a good pilot? If I'm picking out a physician, I don't pick my doctor based on whether or not they believe in Jesus. No, I want to know, are you a good, skilled doctor? God, in his common grace, allows men and women, whether they believe in God or not, to be skilled 
and valuable in their various vocations. And this is good for everyone. We want to affirm this as believers because we believe that this honors the God who allows it. Even in this fallen world, fallen men and women can still do some pretty incredible things. And that makes much of God. But that's not the main thrust of what this passage is trying to teach us. Even in light of the rise of culture, the picture is dark. And that's a warning to us as well. And no matter how advanced and cultured and bright and and, and technologically brilliant a society is, sin is still present and is still able to absolutely corrupt. Historian Peter Gay, in his book Weimar Culture, brilliantly recounts German culture between the two world wars, tracing the rise of Germany's artistic and literary and musical culture. And this was a culture that bloomed in the 1920s and 30s and had far-reaching influence all over the world, even still today in the West. And yet, for all of Weimar's artistic and literary and technological brilliance, it still allowed for the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich and all of the horror that followed from that. In the end, all culture, either used or abused, can never offer true redemption. And I think this account of Cain's descendants kind of saves us from overvaluing culture. Look how we see this here. In verse 19, we see the rise of culture among men beginning with the degeneracy of Lamech's polygamy. (laughs) There's the rise of culture. Lamech takes two wives. God's will for mankind and marriage was already made clear in Genesis 1 and 2. God gave Adam one woman. Eve, who would be his lifelong marriage partner. The text says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, not mothers, and hold fast to his one wife, and they, the two, shall become one flesh. The creation mandate is clear. God institutes marriage to be monogamous. Therefore, we see already the disobedient departure of this line of gain from what God demanded. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Moreover, if Cain's settlement led to a culture marked by polygamy, then it was also clearly a culture marked by violence. Look there at verses 23 and 24. This is like gangster rap before gangster rap became a thing. Lamech said to his wives, Adah, Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Here's a man boasting not only in his polygamous marriage, but he's boasting in his own violence. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He's killed a mere boy just because the boy tried to strike him. Is he repentant about it? Not at all. If the punishment for Cain was sevenfold, If anyone tries to take my life, it'll be repaid 77-fold. Do you see that? He's boasting in his power that no one could touch him. If anyone takes my eye, it'll demand 70 times seven other eyes. Here then is Cain's lineage, a genealogy marked by sinfulness, evil, bragging, pride, polygamy, violence, and settled defiance against God. The saying holds true, the fruit does not fall far from the tree. Father like son. And it's right here where our author Moses, I think, underlines and highlights the distinction between Cain's descendants and now a new line. 
a new genealogy which goes in a completely different direction. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that last line there, I think, is absolutely staggering. If Cain's children slept around with as many women as they could and, and murdered men just for the heck of it, well, then Seth's children were different. They called upon the name of the Lord. That is, they were men who prayed, they worshipped, they confessed God. And look, they didn't just confess and pray to any god, some distant deity somewhere out there. No, the Hebrew says they called upon the name of Yahweh, the covenant God who promises relationships, a redemption, and gets into relationships with his people. It seems to me then that, that after Adam and Eve had Seth, they, they raised and taught Seth about God, much like they would have done with Cain and Abel. Abel believed God, but, you know, Cain killed him. So now Adam and Eve committed yet again to raising their son Seth and doing so in the faith. Seth taught his son Enosh. They had family worship. Adam taught Seth. Seth taught Enosh. They talked about Yahweh. They talked about the gospel in the morning over breakfast, perhaps going to bed at night. They talked about Genesis 3.15 and, and the coming of this snake stomper, a future Messiah. And so now all of chapter 5 continues this perspective. The lineage of Seth is markedly different from that of Cain's. If Cain and his sons were earthly-minded, Seth and his sons are clearly heavenly-minded, a God-focused people. You could almost say Cain gave birth to sons and daughters of man, whereas Seth gave birth to sons and daughters of God. In fact, I think that is what Moses says. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He goes back, and, and he connects Seth to Adam, right? You see that there? In the exact same language that Adam is connected to God. See? This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he, blessed them, he created them and blessed them and named the man where they're created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The way in which Moses uses the same language of image and likeness to connect Seth to Adam and Adam to God carries with it the idea that just as Seth is a son to Adam, so Adam was a son to God. Certainly not a divine son, but a son nonetheless, there was, a, there was a relationship between Adam and God like that of a father and a son. This is exactly how Luke reads this account when he traces Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3 all the way back to the beginning, calling him the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke calls Adam the son of God. So what we're reading here then is a genealogy of these sons of God. They're believers. Just as we pray to the Father, so they, when they called upon the name of the Lord, they did so as sons calling upon a father. And this matches the genealogy of chapter 5, doesn't it? Look seven generations down. And we see Moses kind of pause and 
focus in on one person in particular, the person of Enoch. What do we see about Enoch in verses 21 through 24? Well, Moses first says Enoch walked with God. That's not a throwaway line. What does it mean that he walked with God? The phrase only shows up here and then one other time with Noah in chapter 6, and it describes the closest personal communion someone could have with God. Almost as if they were back in Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day. As we read earlier, uh, as we read earlier this morning in Hebrews 11, the author there says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So what does it mean then that Enoch walked with God? Essentially, it meant that while he lived life here upon earth, he lived a life of faith. He, he sought to please God. He sought God and believed in Him and hoped in what God promised. And this faith that Enoch had was pleasing to God. We also read in the book of Jude a very interesting statement on Enoch, where Jude says, quote, Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Fascinating. In other words, Jude is saying to walk with God, at least in light of Enoch, to walk with God means that Enoch also preached the coming judgment to people who were opposed to God. Enoch talked to other people about God's coming punishment to those who reject him and continue to do their own thing. It seems then that Enoch was, as a man who walked with God, an evangelist. Who would Enoch have been thinking about? Who do you think Enoch evangelized to about God's coming judgment against sin? That's right, the sons of Cain. And look at this. Notice how Moses highlights this here in the narrative. As Jude rightly points out, Enoch is the seventh generation down from Adam through Seth. So, right, Moses kind of skims through everyone else, but then he pauses and he he zooms in on this seventh generation, Enoch, this guy who walked with God. Now, look at this. Moses does the exact same thing back in chapter 4. Guess who's the seventh generation down from Adam through Cain? That's right, Lamech. He skims over everyone else, but he really zeroes in on this character Lamech. Moses couldn't be more intentionally dramatic in how he's writing these two genealogies. Evil Lamech, the man who worshipped his sword, is placed side by side, as it were, with Enoch, the man who walked with God. One, a son of hell, or the other, the son of God. And I think Moses is drawing us in to show us that, again, there is this ever-growing conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, those who follow Satan and those who are sons of God. Listen, here's how I think Moses might want us to apply this truth. If you're here this morning and you are not entirely sure which lineage you fit in, if you're not sure whether you walk with God or not, if you don't trust in God, if you don't call upon the name of the Lord, if you don't confess Yahweh and His Son, Jesus Christ, then friend, you may not be a son of God. 
Your lineage might be in chapter 4 rather than in chapter 5. In the end, Enoch is said to have been taken by God. That is, in God's grace, Enoch was transposed, translated from this earthly existence in life uh, into an eternal uh, existence, exempted, I think, by God from the laws of death and decay, just like it will be for all of us who trust in Christ now, right? And if we're alive when Christ returns, uh, uh, maybe even some of us right here will not taste death, but as Paul reminds us, in a twinkling of an eye, will be changed and brought to an eternal glory with Christ forevermore. The lineage in chapter 5 ends with hope, with the birth of a man named Noah, named as such because, as verse 29 tells us, it was hoped that he would be the one who would bring relief out of the cursed ground. This language harkens back to the curse God gave to Adam after he had sinned. Do you remember that curse? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles the ground shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust in the ground you shall return. Now with the birth of Noah we see this godly line of men now give expression to a very real hope. Is this the son who will finally deliver us from the curse? Is he the promised seed of the woman? And the next four chapters, I think, will deal with that question. And there is a, a flood of passages and narrative to work through to see how Moses answers the question. But I want you to at least see here that this lineage in chapter 5 is dripping with hope for a coming Messiah. Men are not only calling out to Yahweh in hope of redemption, calling upon the name of the Lord. They're even naming their sons in line with their faith and hope. Look at this. Adam, as we've already seen, uh, the name Adam, anybody remember what that means? It means man. Adam means man. Adam has a son, and, and he names him Seth. Uh, Seth means an appointed one, right? We saw that back uh, in chapter 4, verse 25, where Eve says uh, uh, that God has appointed for me another son. So Seth means an appointed one. Now, If you've got notes in front of you, this is the time where you should start writing this down. This is really going to make sense if you have it before you on a piece of paper. Adam means man, right? Seth means appointed. The next son after Seth is named Enosh, all right? Enosh means frail or mortal or miserable. Who's the next son after Enosh? It's this guy named Kenan. Kenan means sorrow. Kenan means sorrow. After that, we see Mahalalel, which means blessed God. Blessed God. Then we see born to Mahalalel, a son named Jared, which means shall come down. Jared means shall come down. After Jared, we see Enoch, and his name means teaching. Enoch means teaching. Enoch has a son named Methuselah, and his name means his death shall bring. His death shall bring. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Then we get his son named Lamech, which means the despairing or the hopeless. Lamech means the despairing or hopeless. And then finally we see our boy Noah, which means rest or comfort. Okay? 
You've got that? And look, you can do this at home with a, a simple Hebrew dictionary. Just look up what the names mean. Uh, you can even find this online. And here's where it gets super interesting. Watch this. If you put all these names together, in order as they are here, they form a sentence, and listen to what it says. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, or miserable sorrow. Man is appointed miserable sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the hopeless rest. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that cool? Uh, uh, you've got to ask the question, right? Whose death shall bring the hopeless rest? Jesus, right? The blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the hopeless rest. Already back here in the pages of Genesis 5, God is inspiring hope to the hopeless through the death of Jesus Christ. Here's a lineage of men who not only call upon the name of the Lord, And they're known as sons of God. Why? Because ultimately they're placing their hope in the true Son of God, the blessed God who will come down, Jesus. The whole Bible, even back here, is about Jesus Christ. We asked the question earlier, do you find yourself in the genealogy of chapter 4 or chapter 5? Friends, the genealogy of chapter 4 is a truly hopeless lineage. It's a lineage of sin and rebellion which only ends in death. And look, so long as we're living life just doing what we want, not not really concerned with what God has called us to in his word, uh, that kind of life will always end in death. After this, I promise you there is judgment, there's hell. That's what death means, never ending death. But this passage gives us hope. There's hope for those of us who find ourselves in chapter 4. By looking to and trusting in Jesus, we too can be transferred from the hopelessness of chapter 4 to now walking with God like these guys in chapter 5. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And it's always been that way. They looked forward to Jesus. We look back to Jesus. So friends, if you've not believed in him, now's the time. Go to Jesus Christ Believe now. Find hope in him. I want to highlight that emphasis, that now is the time. We're called to walk with God now, not later, because the Bible makes it clear over and over and over again, later is never promised to us. We see that here, don't we? Chapter 6 serves as both a summary for what we've just looked at, but also an introduction to what's about to come. And what's about to come is God's judgment upon sinful humanity in the form of a flood. Do you see how chapter 6 begins? As if there was nothing on the horizon? As if God like just didn't care about how people were living? Men were multiplying on the face of the land. Daughters were being born to them. Life was happening. Culture was growing. People were populating. And no one knew what horrific judgment was lying just around the corner. This is exactly how Jesus understood this passage. When in Matthew 24, he says, concerning the time of God's coming judgment, no one knows the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be, coming, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For just as in those days with Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, 
And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And here's how Jesus applies it. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is reading Genesis 5 and 6, and he's reminding us, he's telling us, look, you're no different from them. Judgment came upon them and wiped them out. And even greater judgment is coming now. God won't send a flood. It'll be far worse. God will come himself. And the most important question that we could ever ask is how can I, a sinful man, hopeless in my own sinfulness, ever escape the just wrath of an omniscient, omnipotent, and all-powerful God? Friends, are you walking with God? You know what's really interesting about Genesis 6? It seems like even the godly descendants of Seth were taken off the path of walking with God. And over time, they became indistinguishable from the children of Cain. They suffer and are judged under the flood as well. See there in verse 2? The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. We'll explore this verse a little bit more next week, but it seems to me that what Moses is describing here, especially in light of chapter 4 and 5, is the intermarrying of godly men, those descended from Seth, with ungodly women, those descended from Cain. And what was the result? Well, it's what always happens when someone raised to love and walk after God gives themselves in marriage to someone who doesn't love God. The influence is always, almost always in the direction of godlessness. This is why later God will command the Israelites not to marry the Philistines or the surrounding Moabites. They don't believe. They will take you away from me. This is why Solomon ruined Israel by marrying women who didn't love God. And this is why Christians are commanded to marry in the Lord. Only those people who are believers. Why? Because almost every time the influence is towards godlessness, not godliness. I remember uh, a friend giving an example, and this this is rare, but hear me out. Say you're a believer in God and you're, you're, you're elevated to walk with him. And as you're walking with God, uh, you see a, a very attractive man or a, uh, an attractive woman and you say, I, I, I want to get into a relationship with them. Uh, if I date them, uh, maybe I can help elevate them and pull them up to become believers in God. Now, if I were to ask somebody to come up here and I'm not going to do it, uh, uh, to be that person, uh, do you think I'd be able to pull them up and put them on this chair? Probably not. Not from this position. But if they just gave the slightest tug, what would happen? Immediately, it'd pull me down. And time and time again, when you see people get into relationships, it's always our proclivity to go the easiest route, to just drift towards godlessness. The more we fall in love with people who don't love God, the more we find ourselves also just not as in love with God as we once were. Let that be a warning. The result in Noah's day was that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, all animals and creeping things and birds, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Judgment was coming. Even in the midst of coming judgment, though, do you see the hope at the end of verse 8? 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We found out later that Noah found favor with God because he walked with God. He, he believed in God and hoped in what God promised. Noah found favor because he hoped in a Messiah. Friends, may we also believe and find our ultimate hope in that same Messiah, Jesus Christ, and by God's grace continue to walk with him. Let's pray.